Welcome back to the Gamer Node Show. You're listening to episode 79. I'm Eddie Inzotto, your host and editor in chief of GamerNode.com, and I'm here today to talk about some board games. I've gotten in a few plays of some new games and some maybe older games, and I just wanted to give you my thoughts and maybe even a final review or two and uh, let you know what I think and whether maybe you should spend your time and money on these games. I'm going to start off with a game that has had fairly universal praise since its release. It's a somewhat lighter game and was nominated for the Spiel des Jahres. It's Quest for El Dorado by Reiner Knizia, a deck builder published by Ravensburger. And this game is uh, it's fairly light. It's basically a race across a modular board, and uh, the game comes with a variety of large hexagonal-shaped boards that all fit together in various ways, and you can arrange them however you want or according to some predetermined setups. And each of those large hex boards has numerous smaller hexagonal spaces upon which players will be moving their meeples from the starting spaces all the way to the end which is the entrance to the uh, mythical city of El Dorado and it it's a race through the jungle and the way that it works is players have a uh, small deck of cards to start I think it's eight cards and you draw four much like in most deck builders, you draw half your deck in the starting round, and uh, on a turn, you'll play those cards for one of two things, really. Either for the symbols that are on the card, which can be things like machetes to get through the jungle spaces, or oars to get across the water spaces, or money to uh, get through town market spaces, or um, that money can also be used to purchase new cards to add to your deck. Uh, a couple of other things are cards that allow you to draw or discard cards, either discard them completely from the game to thin out your deck, or drawing new cards into your hand. Um, some cards are actually one-time use, and then you chuck them, but they give you a great benefit for that particular turn. So essentially what you're doing is you're matching the symbols on the cards that come out of your deck into your hand and playing them to match the hexes that you want your meeple to travel along on the board. To improve your odds of being the first to race through to El Dorado, you're going to use those coins that I mentioned as well as any pair of two cards to uh, create another coin on top of what you have already in coins listed on the cards, and spend those coins to purchase a single new card each round, or whenever you have coins, you don't, you don't have to buy a card each round, but you can buy a maximum of one card per round from a market area, um, in which there will be, I believe, six cards available 
in stacks of three, and once those are purchased, they create an empty space, and the next time a player wants to purchase a card, they get to pull down a stack of, uh, let's say, their better cards from a an additional market that is that was previously unavailable. And in this way, as you go through the earlier cards that are available, you will then gain access to newer and better cards. And these ones will be, you know, maybe you started with cards that have one machete on them, or one ore, or one coin. So maybe they'll have two machetes, or three, or five machetes. Or maybe they'll have a machete, an ore, and a coin, and you can then use that card whichever way you like. Um, the, the board also has specific spaces where if you land your meeple on there, you'll be able to discard a card from your hand. Or there are some other spaces that allow you to access stacks of tiles. These are mountain cave spaces. And when you take a tile from an adjacent space, you'll gain the benefit there. It may be a an ore symbol or a machete symbol or, or something that you can use at any point on a future turn. Or it may be a particular ability that you can use by trading in that tile, like passing through a hex on which uh, one of your opponents is standing because normally players block each other's paths. Um, or it may be uh, the ability to discard a card or it may be some other special ability that, um, that helps you in some way. So the game is really very simple. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything majorly complex or, or really super interesting mechanically about it, but um, as a light game and an introduction to deck building, it's it's actually very, very good. Um, I think there's a, a level of excitement to it because it is a race, and because of the way the game is designed, uh, I think that players will often find themselves in somewhat tight races. Uh, because essentially you're starting off with the same deck and you're starting from the same place and you're going to the same place. So the level of variation there is somewhat limited. Um, of course, you'll change your path through the game and through the jungle by making decisions on what cards to buy, whether you want to go heavy on your ability to get over water or if you want to get cards that are going to give you more money to be able to purchase more cards later or maybe take shortcuts through villages or you know maybe you want to uh just really power through with machetes or maybe you want to get some of the special cards that give you the ability to trash things or draw cards or or you know get those big bonuses at at one point and then chuck the card so there are certainly choices to be made, um, and the game doesn't totally play itself, you know, in its simplicity. But um, you, I did find that that games took on a um, a similar feel each time, which which stands to reason. It you're racing from one end to the other. It is very nice that that the boards 
are all double-sided with different configurations of hexes on each side, and you can place them out in whatever uh, pattern or orientation that you like. So you might build a straight line, or you might have a, a path that circles around, uh, or you might have a zigzag. Um, you might add some narrow sort of rectangular pieces in between the larger hexagonal boards, and that gives it a little bit of a change of pace. Um, and then there are these barricades that go between each of those larger tiles that are only passable after a player has reached it and spent a particular number of symbols to get through. So there's sort of this, uh, I guess, the catch-up mechanism because the first player to reach there has to expend resources to open up that path, and then all of the subsequent players who come through don't have to spend anything. So he's wasted a little bit of time and allowed them to catch up maybe a little bit. Um, now, in in one way, this game kind of breaks its own mold, and that's in the two-player game, because whereas in the three- and four-player game you have one meeple per player, in the two-player game each player has two meeples to use, and both of those meeples have to make it to the end of the path, you know, reach the city of El Dorado. So players have to use their cards and determine which meeple they're going to spend each card on, because you can't actually split up, say there are five machetes on a card, you can't use three of them for your one meeple to go one space forward onto a three machete space and then use the remainder, the two that were left over, on your other meeple to go forward maybe two single machete spaces. You have to divide it up by card, not by symbol. So it feels like there's a lot more decision-making and a little bit more crunchiness to the play when you have to examine the board state and make a determination of what would be best for your team, which is yourself playing with two meeples, um, to get the maximum benefit by dividing up these cards in, in whatever particular way. So in that two-player game, I think there's a little bit more depth to the game in general. But in, in either case, I think I, I do really like this game, Quest for El Dorado. So um, that's one that I certainly recommend. And I think uh, players, especially players who um, are not huge deck builder fans, but uh, may want to sort of get a light introduction to it or even just something different, because I, I find that this one, um, because of that race aspect and, and the way that you're using the cards, kind of has a more accessible feeling uh, of deck building, and um, it's fun, and I like the theme, and, you know, there, you, you end up really hoping and praying for those cards to come out, and uh, maybe looking at your opponent's moves, and they make a big move, and they move a ton of spaces forward, so you have sort of these big memorable moments that that are possible in this game, that uh, really make it 
uh, one of those one of those games that you can attach memories to and uh, have a, a little bit of an emotional connection with with your friends. So yeah, the quest for El Dorado by Reiner Knizia from Ravensburger is uh, certainly a good choice. I wouldn't I wouldn't rate it, you know, five out of five, but uh, I could certainly see this being a, a four out of five game for uh, many people. So that one is worth looking at. And I think it's not very expensive either. So that's a good bonus. So now maybe to shift gears a little bit, we're going to look at another game. This one is actually a reprint of a game that has been very popular, uh, maybe due to its relative unavailability for many years. Uh, This is a worker placement game from Cosmos, and uh, I don't know if they published it originally, but that's who's publishing it now, and it's called Pillars of the Earth. This is a game that was often cited as one of the great light worker placement games, Um, I think often put in the same sort of genre uh, category, essentially, of... uh, the light worker placement or or medium light worker placement, kind of like Stone Age and uh, Lords of Waterdeep, maybe not because of its specific mechanics, you know, beyond the simple categorization of being a worker placement. uh, These games all have different nuances to them. But um, Pillars of the Earth has been a game that has been on people's grail lists. It's been a game that people who have played it highly recommend they say it's so good too bad it's out of print blah 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 well now it's in print and um i played it and i have to say i found it boring um i i will have to be candid here and say that it's not a game that i see as uh rising above and beyond games like stone age or lords of Waterdeep, or um Honestly, a, a number of such games I would play above uh, Pillars of the Earth. I I think it had some interesting mechanisms, or or at least unique mechanisms that turned out to not be as interesting as they sounded. Um, maybe I'll uh, just just describe it a little bit here. So, Pillars of the Earth is a game about players essentially competing to build a cathedral but it's essentially a game where you are converting the raw materials required to build a cathedral directly into victory points so it feels like there is at least a degree of detachment from that theme but um the game is interesting in that you have two forms of currency you have money that you use to make purchases of resources or spend on taxes or events or or various things that it might be used for. But I think the primary currency is um, workers. And and the, the nomenclature here is interesting because you have workers, which are a currency, uh, and then you have master builders, which are actually workers in the uh, the worker placement sense. So these workers that you have in the 
first phase of each round uh, are used to essentially purchase a number of cards that become available. And these cards that come out, they represent the three raw materials that are necessary to build the cathedral, wood, stone, and uh, sand. And there's a value on each of these cards representing how much of that resource you are to receive in that round. And the higher that value, the more workers you have to expend to be able to take that card. And each of those resources uh, exists somewhere in this hierarchy of sand and then wood and then stone in order of um, value, with stone being the greatest value. So um, you have these 12 workers and you can, you take turns, players take turns spending them to purchase these cards, which will come into play later. Um, there are also in each player's possession, there are other cards that represent various uh, craftsmen who are essentially the means to score points. And each one will basically have a conversion rate on the card, indicating how many of those raw materials that you have purchased earlier with your workers can be converted into points and how many points they can be converted into. So a very basic version of the the wood craftsman uh, lineup might be you spend four wood for one point. And then later on, as you purchase new cards or acquire them through the worker placement that happens in the next phase of the game, uh, you might find a wood-related craftsman card that earns you two points for every three wood or or one point per one wood. So they have these different conversion rates and you have to decide which one you think uh, will be the most beneficial to you. So there are the raw material cards and there are these craftsman cards. Then there's a second half of the round, each round, where you have a bag full of master builder pawns and they're drawn out randomly by one of the players and uh, each player has three of these in their color in the bag. So as each one is drawn, the player who's the owner of that master builder has the opportunity to make a placement on the board in a number of spaces that might allow you to take a, a card that gives you a special ability or a card that is another craftsman that you don't have to pay for with workers, you just get it for free, or it might get you the opportunity to buy and sell raw materials, or it might gain you uh, an invulnerability to bad events that come out each round, or or exemption from taxes that you have to pay from your other currency, the, the actual money uh, that happens each round. Or it might get you more workers for the following round to use in that card buying phase. So you take this master builder and you have to pay money from that money track 
in order to be allowed to place him out on the board. And there's another track at the bottom of the board that's relevant in this phase because it indicates how much money one of these master builder placements will cost. And the first one that comes out, uh, I think, costs seven coins. And a player whose master builder came out can choose to pay that to get the juiciest spots on the board or pass place that master builder down on this track and then the next master builder is drawn and the player whose master builder that is gets to choose whether they want to spend six dollars or pass and then this keeps going down and down and down until players really can't resist paying the money because it, it, it's too much of a risk to give up those spaces that you want and then once all of those master builders have been drawn anyone who had passed then gets to place for free in order. So this is the actual real worker placement portion of the game. Then, like like some other games where you first make your placements and then go through in order of location on the board and carry out those actions, you do that in this game as well. And the first thing will be one of those events that comes out, and uh, sometimes it's something good, but oftentimes it's something bad. There's a place where players become exempt from that. Then uh, you receive money from your unused workers in the first portion of the round. The Let's call them the currency workers. And then you collect your resources or you have your opportunity to buy those special abilities. And you get some... Then there's a taxation and uh, a player might get a metal resource. And then a player might get some free craftsmen, then a player might get some free uh, uh, currency workers, and then a player might be able to buy and sell at the market, and then you all spend all of your resources to get as many points as possible as part of building the cathedral. And then you go to the next one, and you do the same thing over again. And, um, I, yeah, I, I found the ideas interesting, but in practice, I found the game somewhat repetitive and boring. It's uh, not really something I would recommend running out and getting, and I'm surprised that the sentiment surrounding this game has been so favorable over the years, and I think there's at least some element of the unavailability of it making it somewhat more desirable than it would otherwise be. So I wouldn't recommend Pitless of the Earth very highly. I would I would rate it somewhere in low three. A, kind of a a weak three on the gamer node scale. Like it's it's satisfactory, but like it's approaching lackluster. So that's Pillars of the Earth and uh I'm sorry, but it's just just wasn't for me. Now a game that really was for me is Rajas of the Ganges. And now this is a wonderful, wonderful game by Inca and Marcus Brand and coming from R&R Games. And this is also a worker placement game, but um, it's, it's an interesting one, and uh, I would say it has a different feel from most games. Uh, you have dice in this game, 
that are a resource and unlike certain games where or like uh let's say the voyages of marco polo where you have a pool of dice and you roll them and whatever's on those die faces are the values of the workers that you can use uh, you might need a one to place in a particular location or need a, a five to place somewhere else um, in Rajas the Ganges, you roll your dice uh, as you receive them, and you may have one, you may have five, you may have eight, or you may have zero dice in your possession. And what they are is a collection of resources in uh, a few different colors. So in some cases, you may want to place a worker, which is a separate thing. You get meeples that are workers, and you have just a few of them to start, and you, you'll get a couple more by reaching certain spaces on the scoring tracks and up the river that sort of bisects the board. Um, but if you want to place in a location, it might require you to spend a die of a certain value. And then that would that in combination with the worker placement would give you the ability to take that action. And that then there are other spaces where the color of the die matters. So you might trade a an orange die for a new blue die, um, or you might trade in one die for two other dice. Uh, and then you take the new dice and you'll roll them and then you put them in your little holding area. So there are interesting ways that these dice as resources uh, and categories of resources interact with your worker placement. They can also be used as part of this uh, player board that you have where you can purchase tiles from a supply that shows die pip values on them. So you may take an action on the board that says you can take a tile, but then when you go to grab one of those tiles, you have to have that requirement, you know, orange dice adding up to at least eight pips. And then maybe you throw two or three dice back into the supply and take this tile and place it on your board. And on your board, you have roads that go from a starting point into these tiles that you're adding to your board and uh, along the path to the outer edge of the board where you will get bonuses for connecting those roads. That you, um, that you take immediately when making that final placement and connection. And then on those tiles as well, there are little market icons that represent a few different commodities like tea or silk or what have you that come into play later when you make placements on the board to take actions that then refer to those commodities and earn you, say, uh, income, money, or, or whatever. And this is another interesting thing, because the way the game is scored 
is on two scoring tracks that go in opposite directions around the outside of the board, and you have markers on either one. And as you go up on one, maybe you're moving up and around counterclockwise, you're moving up on the other in a clockwise fashion, and when those two markers meet each other, you have a winner, or that triggers the end of the game and the other players have the chance to catch up in that last move that they get to make, or maybe even surpass the player who triggered the end and uh, win it themselves. Uh, I played one very close game where I was uh, essentially a move ahead, and my opponent could only make it to within one point of my score. And it seemed like I was behind for a long time in the game, but taking actions to uh, improve my fame late in the game was uh, a big benefit because certain actions move one scoring track really well and other actions and, and therefore strategies move the other track in a much more efficient way. And um, then you have this, uh, this river track going up the middle of the board that is another place where some of your worker placement actions can have their effects felt because you have your little boat that moves up the river and each time you move up, you will land on a space that gives you a bonus action for that turn. Um, so there's a lot of interplay between the various things that you can do in this game, and there is of a, a really wide variety of things you can do and a wide variety of ways you can utilize the resources at hand to advance your position and uh, make for a successful play. And I, I love Rajas of the Ganges. I highly recommend this game. Uh, I would like to get it played a few more times, but um, it is in the the four to five range for me. And um, I would say that anyone who enjoys this type of Euro, this worker placement style Euro with uh, a sort of variety of way to score points, uh, definitely jump out and get this game. This feels, it has a little bit of a feeling of a, a Feld-type game, but um, there is a uniqueness to it. It's a good game, yeah. I, I definitely say if you have the opportunity to play this, 100% play it. And um, if you're thinking of buying it, then uh, you probably should. Yeah, so Raja's the Ganges from R&R Games and Inca and Marcus Brand certainly uh, recommended. Now, finally... My uh, my final, final thoughts on Charterstone. Um, I'm going to, once again, be very blunt and say that I do not like this game. I do not recommend this game. I don't, I don't think it's worth your time. Um, I would say that this really embodies my two rating it's lackluster it it's not quite insufferable <laughs> i wouldn't go and rate this a one 
but um and and that's because there are mechanisms at play here and very interesting ideas that uh just don't pan out into anything enjoyable uh for me so it's certainly lackluster uh but but it's not utterly broken and uh it's not insufferable so charterstone we talked about it once about halfway through uh and then we kind of powered our way through the the final games and um really at no point beyond the the first few games was I genuinely excited to play the game. I think the most fun I had with this game was unlocking the new parts of the game. There are these opportunities to open what the game calls crates, uh, which equates to checking an index and pulling out various numbered cards from the deck, the secret deck, and then adding those cards to the game. And these might be new ways to play. Uh, They might give you more buildings that you're going to build. They might give you more sort of helper characters, and there are a variety of those because uh, new rules are added that determine how these different cards affect your game. Um, and, And... the cards might be new personas, which is just your main character with an ability that helps you out. Um, so there, there are really a lot of parts to this game that are, again, interesting when you discover the new mechanisms that come into play and you think of how this might affect the game. But in playing the game, I found that there was not much that was interesting to do. Uh, there was not much that really felt rewarding, uh, aside from building out the Charterstone board, the map of uh, Green Gully, as it's called. The sticking of the stickers onto the board as you built buildings and... Uh, as you pulled out new buildings and saw what they were and what they could do and uh, had these ideas of how you would have a a beautiful and functional town where you could place all your workers and take all your resources and convert them into money and points and what have you was great. And it was really exciting to pull those cards out. But really the game came down to optimizing your your placements to turn resources into points or turn turn placement actions into points in a, a couple of different ways but uh even with all these different aspects of the game which you know were manifest just in more and more cards the game was never really elevated beyond the core premise of just place here, get this stuff, place here, spend this stuff, place here, get this stuff, place here, get some points. Um, and uh, I honestly, I would like to have not spent 12 games playing it. So I, I generally recommend that people don't spend 12 games playing it. 
Um, the art's beautiful. The buildings are interesting. It's fun to open up new boxes. It's it's interesting to see the new game mechanisms. Uh, one particular mechanism has a number of components that are essentially like they're they're sort of like the core of the the game's mechanism and and using them will be satisfying uh if you can do it well and that's great and it's fun seeing the equivalent unit let's call it that's available for each of the different charters um, and seeing how the different charters are analogous to one another in their focus and in the way that you might expect an optimized game board to allow players to use an engine that is particular to their charter. Um, but yeah, still, still overall, there's just so much that's better out there in the gaming world. Like basically any Uwe Rosenberg game is a better resource conversion optimization game than this. Um, if you want a game where you are building buildings that can then be used later, there are certainly a number of those available uh, to, to the point where you don't need Charterstone and you don't need to work through a game that is essentially incomplete 11 times. Um, cause really after you've finished the campaign, that's when, in my opinion, the game feels like, oh, it's ready to be played. And at that point, you, you know, you might already be over it. And, um, and even still the game that has been built at that point is, uh, still not as good as games that came pre-assembled for you, uh, by the designer. So Charterstone's not one that I recommend, and it's unfortunate because it was something that I and so many other players were really excited for, and I and I think um, it seems like the game has received some positive attention, but I I just uh, sadly I don't agree, and that's unfortunate because I I love Stonemaier Games and they've created some great stuff. You saw my Viticulture review was I a 5 out of 5 for the game. Uh, Scythe is a game that I love. Um, so this one is just a miss, that's all. So that's it. That's that's Charterstone from Stonemeyer Games, designed by Jamie Stegmeyer, great designer. And I think that'll do it for this episode. That's a bunch of games, a bunch of varying opinions on all of those games. We've got uh, great to good to less good to not so good. And that's it. I'm Eddie Inzato. Thanks for listening to The Gamer Node Show. Make sure you check out all of our review videos on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, listen here all the time. I look forward to the next one. So until next time, keep playing those games and you have fun out there. (laughs) 